Hey there, friends. Good to be back with you on Buen Provecho Chronicles, talking food, sharing some laughs, and causing cravings. And boy, oh boy, are you going to be hungry after today's show. Today's guest is Olga Kutsuridi, perhaps better known as a local bread baker on Instagram, or in my case, the woman who makes me want cheesecake every time she posts a pic, irregardless if it's a picture of bread, a donut, panettone, it doesn't matter. Her Basque cheesecake is, in my opinion, just so, so good. And damn, it makes me want to slice right now. We talked for two hours. Two hours, people. And I'll have you know, this is the first time we've chatted. So to say I was in food nerd heaven is an understatement. While we left a few stones unturned, we definitely hit on a number of food-related topics, and I had such a good time speaking with her. I'm looking forward to catching up with her again in the future. Until then, here's my first chat with Olga. Enjoy! <laughs> um, I'm exactly the same way. I only took notes because I was like, I have so many things I want to ask her and I don't want to look like a complete idiot. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I. <laughs> cool. Um, so now that I've got the pronunciation down of your name, so Olga, Olga, I say Olga Spanish, Kutsaridi. Um, Perfect. Great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I know you as local bread baker, but I also really know you as the woman who makes the best cheesecake in Austin. <laughs> That's an honor. That's quite the title because there's some, you know, com- competition here. Um, uh, I know. There are great, I love cheesecake. There are great cheesecakes out there. But for, so I have to tell you the backstory of how I came across your Basque cheesecake, which I had never had before. I'd never heard of Basque cheesecake. Like I've heard of, you know, the fluffy cloud Japanese cheesecake mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, but I have a group of friends who actually, I interviewed them. Right before you, not today, but for an episode that's right before this one. And we like to hang out and talk about food and all this stuff. And so they give, we give each other tips on the local Austin food scene. And so one of them was like, you have to check out this baker. She's only on Instagram and you like sign up for her email. And then she like sends you a menu and then you go to her house. And it's just like this magical drop off of cheesecake. And I was like, yes, I'm in. I have to check this out. And then so I went to your Instagram page. And I, I mean, literally the, the picture of the cheesecake sold me. And I was like, I don't know. It's oozing cream. How could it not be good? I, it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear um, like a third party talk about the process because it's just something that I've been doing for a couple of years now. And it, it seems so natural to me. But when you hear somebody describe how you go about getting my baked goods, it is uh, it does have a layer of mystery <laughs> to it. It does, which I think adds to the allure. And so when you get it, and it's actually really good too, because, you know, you're taking a chance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she just she goes, it's almost like this, you know, drug pickup, but of the best kind. <laughs> oh I was like, God. okay, that sounds great. I'm in. Yeah. Um, the love for that particular um, Bay Good comes from my deep, deep love for anything creamy or custardy. One of the local chefs actually here, Paige, um, he described it as one of the best representations of dairy. And um, it's, it's because I love, I love, 
I love milky things. I don't know how else to describe it. Creamy and creaminess. Um, and obviously, you know, it, it does have sugar in it. So it does have, you know, a punch of sweetness to it. But I think it, it's balanced out really nicely with the burnt kind of smokiness that you get from baking it at a very, very high temperature. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. When I tried it, I was like, it's the perfect balance of sweetness and just like that custardy without it being eggy. Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. so because I've tried some cheesecakes and or I've tried other best cheesecakes. I'm like, nope, too much egg. And yours was like, ah, heaven. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, I think, because I lead with the dairy and, and not, not the egg you know, as much. Um, there's a, you know, a change of textures between the super creamy middle. And I will say that, I mean, I think I'm happy I'm doing this podcast because I can tell the audience that it's supposed to be that runny. Like some people are <laughs> a little bit taken back um, by just how creamy and runny it is. Yeah. It's, that's the beauty of it. And I think if you go from the creamy middle to like this, uh, the harder outside, um, it's just another kind of play with textures, which yeah. I think that's something Americans can actually appreciate because they're notorious for wanting like a lot of texture. Mm-hmm. Their, yeah, I'm their, like, it's um, a journey. Go on it. Just take the <laughs> cheesecake journey. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I think there's probably, I'm going to hazard a guess that there's just some aversion to thinking, you know, to it maybe being undercooked, which it's absolutely not. And so the fear, and I'm like, if you eat chocolate chip cookie dough, you're eating raw egg constantly. Obviously yours is not raw, but right. yeah, I, I think it probably freaks people out, but I'm like, it's literally the best part to me. So. And I think a lot of people forget that cheesecake is actually a custard. So if you think of it like that and you think of custards, you know, uh, pastry cream or a uh, donut filling like Boston cream, um, you know, everything is runny because it's a custard. And so if you think of cheesecake as a custard, then it's like it makes sense for it to be, you know, a little bit gooey. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Right. If you're in Austin and you haven't tried it, go do yourself a favor and get the cheesecake. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> yes, sign up for the newsletter. Be in the know. It's it sells fast. It's it's definitely my top top um seller, if you will. Kind of probably what maybe put me on the local map. Like I said, some chefs kind of got wind of it and tried it and kind of realized just, I guess the quality was re- really high and it kind of yeah took off a little bit and gave me. A bigger presence on the on the Austin food scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, well deserved, absolutely. So one of the questions I usually start out with, I like to find out what um, my guest's food background is, and I start specifically with the food background of your childhood because I really think right that's the foundation for then how our food preferences change and evolve and and all that. So yeah, I'm curious, what's the food background of your childhood? So um, it's a little complicated because uh, as I was growing up, we moved a lot and traveled a lot, but I'll start probably, you know, from up until I was 10, I primarily ate my mom's food and my mom is Russian. So, I mean, yeah, I, we didn't go out to eat that often. So, you know, our mom cooked all the time and Russian and Ukrainian food. And it's really honestly hard to tell because we um, are, my mom's family is from like a border town, which makes the whole concept of who you are <laughs> even more complicated uh, because there's less of a, dis- you know, a de- definitive understanding of 
where one ends and you know where the russianness ends and the ukrainianness begins or what vice versa yeah i totally get that growing up <laughs> on the u.s mexican border it's like i'm american but my parents are mexican and we're re- literally you know three miles away from it so it's this weird like mixing and blending and you kind of belong a little bit there you kind of belong a little bit here and I, I always say the border is a completely different world. So it, it is. Yeah. And, and you sort of, you know, it's hard to answer who you are or identity becomes a, a much more complicated uh, thing and language, too. But yeah, so my mom cooked a lot. My mom is an, um, she's probably my my biggest source of like inspiration when it comes to cooking. She's probably one of the best cooks to me <laughs> in, in the world. Um, and so my my mom cooked a lot of Russian and Ukrainian food. And, and that's what our household mainly ate because my dad didn't really cook. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> my, <laughs> my, uh, my mom's thing. And um, yeah, it's an interesting question because then when I was kind of growing up and we moved to the States, then we kind of rebelled a little bit from that identity and eating uh, all the Russian food. And so like my sister and I went to eat American food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we couldn't win our mom over as far as like getting her to cook American food. So even if, anywhere we lived, you know, my mom kind of continued cooking Russian and uh, <laughs> Ukrainian food. <laughs> How and old were you when you moved to the States? I was, uh, I think, 10, um, nine going on 10. Yeah, something like that. And yeah, because then we wanted to be, you know, American. (laughs) McDonald's is the one that always comes up when I talk to friends who, you know, who either immigrate here or just it's that fast food culture that you, you know, is like, that's very American. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, um, it's, you know, I there's like it was a big deal when the first McDonald's opened in Moscow and not that we were from a big city or anything. but yeah, that was a, I mean, people I think here take it for granted, but going out to your first fast food, um, you know, it's a really memorable experience. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, would you say that's one of your earliest childhood, like food memories, or is there even something like that precedes that? Yeah, I, I was reflecting on that question. And I think about, you know, the, the relationship between memory and food often. And the way I remember the past, I think, is not very clear. And so I need to either smell something or see something for me to trigger a memory. And probably one of the reasons I love cooking and trying new food is uh, because I never know what might surface in in my mind. But but eating my first McDonald's fries was definitely a memory that I remember. I think I remember. (laughs) (laughs) I know yeah you always start to question like that your younger memories because you're like is it real or how old was I really is it based on the photos that I saw that Mm -hmm. my parents took yeah we um we like I think my first experience abroad was we went to Paris and we went to a McDonald's in Paris uh and uh we got a bunch of uh, like I think we got the fish sandwich I got definitely fries and soft serve and then I remember putting the fries into the soft serve and it was incredible Um, and you know the saltiness with the sweetness of the ice cream and I I love soft serve like if if I wasn't baking bread I would be making ice cream Um, that's like another custardy passion of mine. <laughs> I know I'm starting to realize that maybe I also have a thing for custard because I love making ice cream like I'll make ice cream over the summer and I just 
love it. And I'm like thinking, I'm like cheesecake. I love flan and like all of this. I'm like, these are all custard. Yes, that's a custard too. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got something in common here. You know, there's the a Spanish kind of in, uh, influenced flan um, that you see kind of all over the world. And there's also the Parisian flan, which is really just baked pastry cream inside like a uh, what there's different uh, crusts you can use either like um, you know pastry um, what do you call them oh my god I'm blank short crust you know and puff pastry and I prefer puff than short because uh, I like the layers of uh, butter. the butter <laughs> <laughs> well what a surprise that I love butter <laughs> I have a whole butter here somewhere. Do you okay? I've gone so in 2020, I kind of sort of kept track of how much butter I bought and baked with. And it I mean, I'm imagining you probably surpassed this because you have a side business. Uh, but for a home baker, it seems like a lot. I got close to 30 pounds of butter of just like baking bread and you know, make I didn't use it in ice cream, but just like all of the cookies and cakes and you know, um making meringue frostings and stuff so yeah we went through a lot of butter yeah and butter um in american <laughs> culture is so undervalued it, it's kind of crazy how little people care about butter here you know the taste of butter the uh, nuances of flavor and like the colors and the texture and the different like fat content like nobody cares about <laughs> i'm like you've met the one american who does probably i mean there's many right but yeah, yeah I, I think it's because we don't i i feel like it is happening now with just yeah. just the return of so much artisanal food and stuff like that but mm -hmm. we've had crappy butter for so many years. And then there's the whole back and forth. Butter's bad. Butter's good. Butter's bad. Butter's oh, good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so like there's like so many opposing. There's so many. It's gotten bad PR, basically, butter. <laughs> because of the 80s uh, fat scare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, no, embrace the butter. Just like you should embrace the dairy that clearly we're obsessed with. <laughs> um, but I wanted to get back to. I did, I did a little sleuthing in preparation for today's interview. And so I know that you were here. Well, I don't know that you were here in the States. I don't know how I found this, but did you study in Spain? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, we moved, like I said, moved around quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so after we came here, then we yeah. decided to move to Spain. And so... Um, been there and I say there because my parents are still there so oh, cool. it, it, it's been a home kind of you know where me and my sister would kind of go to see her anyway wherever our parents are is our home yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, which makes you know a lot of people can't really understand what that means but yeah um so uh so my parents have been living in Spain since uh 2001 and and that's where I finished high school. That's where my sister finished high school. And then we came back here to the States to go to college. Okay. Um, so yeah, we went to an American school I used to play tennis. Uh, that's probably where some of my kind of neuroses uh, <laughs> <laughs> competitive uh, mindset with, with myself, usually in the yeah. kitchen of like, I need to make them the most delicious. <laughs> Basque cheesecake and you have, <laughs> you win. <laughs> the most delicious uh, babka and I and I am driven by taste I, I will say um, I'm not one of those sort of highly decorative um, or not highly I'm not really 
aesthetically driven um so yeah. i'm very i know rustic is abused in that sense it's like <laughs> anything that's ugly that comes out of your oven is called rustic. rustic but yeah i don't i don't care much about how things look unless it's compromising to what the product is eating. sure yeah because we eat with our eyes first right so you were in barcelona and then you moved back for college and then so what did you study when you were here? Well, I guess, what did you study in college? This is leading somewhere. <laughs> yeah. In college, I went to Iowa State. Uh, so I lived in Columbus. That's where Jenny's ice cream is from. Yeah. So like <laughs> custard. You see, you've been following your inner custard guide for years. <laughs> and when I was at Ohio State, I studied uh, history and specifically ancient history. So I kind of double majored and double minored uh, and, and and so yeah like an ancient art history minor so I did a, a, a mini study abroad in Italy as well so I lived in Rome for just a little bit and oh, cool. my, my area of specialization in ancient history was Roman Republican history and archaeology and because I believe very strongly in the idea that you can't study history without material uh, culture, which means, you know, objects mm. around us. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. I, I studied uh, outside of Florence. I studied art history, which is so cliche, probably, and watercolor. But it was literally a way for me to get overseas for at a, a, you know some period of time and it was absolutely amazing but I just really wanted to go study abroad because I knew it was like a one once in a lifetime opportunity and they are one of my you know some of my fondest memories and I remember thinking do I do Rome do I do Florence yeah. and I ended up in a, like a smaller town it's called Castiglion Fiorentino and it was perfect for what I wanted to get out of had I gone to Rome I think I probably would have been overwhelmed and got into a lot more trouble <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there's no shortage of, of, of trouble <laughs> oh my god oh that's awesome so yeah. okay so what is so do you work as a professor do you work with you know your degree because I certainly do not yeah great question so I thought that's what I was going to do so I had kind of this idea in my mind that I was gonna you know get my bachelor's in history ancient history and then I was gonna apply uh, to graduate and go to graduate school and then get my PhD in ancient history and become an ancient history professor somewhere fancy. Yeah. As I learned, um, I went to, the reason why I moved to Austin was for grad school, um, got, okay. to, in, got into the UT Austin classics pro, um, department and, you know, they made me a nice offer. So I, I came here um, in 2011 uh, to start my PhD program. And the more I was in my program, the more I realized that my values uh, did not align with the values of the academy. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, it's a very, you know, I don't know who's going to hear this, but it, I mean, this is true. Yeah. It's an elitist environment yeah. and the sort of the systems that it perpetuates um, where I where I wasn't really connecting with, mm. and also the type of people that I was surrounded by. There, there's not a lot of diversity. It's different from field to field, sure. but my field of classic lacks in in the diversity <laughs> department. Uh, so I just always felt the kind of too different, uh, and uh, you know I I struggled with the idea of leaving just because you know, the system wasn't designed for me or because I'm different. Yeah. And so I, I did spend quite a bit of time in the PhD program, got my master's, learned a lot, but 
ultimately decided to to leave um, the academy. So and now, ironically, I help other grad students finish their PhDs <laughs> uh, and actually help them decide what they want to do with their lives. So I'm I'm a graduate career uh, advisor. advisor. Yeah, um, you're so. probably actually really well suited for it because you didn't go down that road, but you have a lot of, you know, value to bring to them and knowledge. And I think you can probably help them make a better decision than, <laughs> than maybe <laughs> whether they choose to go down it or not. So yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I love that world behind, but I still love history and I still, you know, in, engage with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so then how did do you call it how how do you refer to local bread baker do you say like i have a home do you have a, a side hustle a business how do you yeah, how, what, yeah. what words do you like to use to refer to what it is uh, i kind of i'm i maybe a little sarcastic or ironic when i talk about it um uh, but i i refer to it as a nano bakery or just like <laughs> uh, I, I mean usually when i'm serious and i talk about it it's a, it's a uh, cottage cottage bakery because I do bake out of my home mm -hmm. uh, and I qualify it usually by saying it's a, a weekend cottage bakery because uh, I primarily do business on the weekends so I bake like Friday through Sunday and people pick up Saturday or Sunday so um, yeah I'm I probably overqualify a lot of the things that I do or describe, <laughs> but I, um, I, I'm usually specific about that yeah. So, um, so yeah how did it come about Great question. And then the uh, the one thing I forgot to say about uh, the historical background, the most valuable thing uh, coming out of the a graduate program was actually the research skills that I developed that were really instrumental to me learning to be a baker. Hmm. So, you know, my ability to research and read, you know, and collect data analyze it and then apply it in the kitchen like I you know that that's definitely a skill set that was uh, I wouldn't have known that <laughs> but so the methodology um, that I learned um, really helped me become the baker I am and so when I was you know in a place where I knew that the academy you know I didn't want to pursue an academic uh, career I started baking um, I, I was also kind of going through an identity crisis because when you leave graduate school, you're like, who am I and uh, what does this all mean? And so I was actually going through uh, a period where I started cooking a lot of my mom's recipes. I started teaching myself how to bake. This was, was back in 2015, 16. And so it was also a way for me to kind of reconstruct my identity. And so I really embraced where I came from you know, my mom's, um, my family history, my family's food history, which is really heavy on fermentation. And that actually is one of the reasons that I started fermenting. Um, like my dad's family used to have a SCOBY. And so they used to make kombucha um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, make their own sauerkraut. Um, and I'm sure they had a starter. But, you know, specifically, local bread baker came about very organically. It, it was... Um, it started with me bringing bread into work and people started giving me a lot of compliments and a lot of positive feedback, probably the most positive feedback I've ever gotten in my life from anything I've ever done. And I've tried a lot of things. <laughs> 
So then people, you know, would e either ask, you know, are you bringing more bread in or, you know, can, can I have some of your bread? And, and so it went for me just kind of sharing to people starting kind of requesting it and asking for it. And then, the, uh, you know, every weekend I would set a challenge for myself and I'm, I would be like, you know, I want to learn how to make this recipe and I would try it and perfect it. And then I would add it to my repertoire of baking. Um, and so I guess I've been doing this whole uh, side gig and there's definitely more than that at this point. Um, I've been doing it for almost two years, which is really interesting because of the pandemic that's happening now where this is literally a way of life, you know, for people in the food industry who are now selling out of their homes, um, you know, both, uh, you know, not just baked goods, like people actually cook and sell it which is kind of interesting because I started a year earlier. Like I, I, there's no way I could have afforded like a brick and mortar yeah. <laughs> in Austin or even a food truck, just like a more accessible way into the food scene. Um, so for me, it was also kind of just, I had to do it this way. Uh, and so I started kind of asking myself, you know, how could I reach more people? But it, mainly word of mouth um, started by selling to people at UT, like my colleagues, my, my partner works at the Harry Ransom Center. And so a lot of people there were like, I need to get Olga bread. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, some of the other things I introduced. Uh, yeah, so it, it started very organically. Yeah. Like pretty much any anyone who would start baking and sharing their baked goods and then people just wanted more. <laughs> That's so cool. I know. It's funny. I'm thinking about when you were talking about your academic background really being a benefit to kind of just not falling into, but, you know, jumping into baking and, and cooking and all of this stuff, mm -hmm. um, fermenting and, and stuff. I mean, I, I, I do, I've always thought of bakers as these kind of mad scientists because I know people are intimidated by baking because they're like, oh, you can't riff, you know, the same way you can with, you mm -hmm. know, savory dishes or whatever. And it's like, well, yes, there are like some basic principles that if you want a decent product, you should follow. But, you know, once you get it down, then you can start to mm -hmm. riff. Exactly. Um, but there, yeah, there is a lot of science behind it. And, and there's a reason because there, there are literally like chemical reactions happening. And if you're not doing it the right <laughs> way, then like, why would your science experiment work? <laughs> um, so yeah, I like what a benefit because I know I so I have and it's, I feel like you probably are like light years ahead of me, because I don't have <laughs> this like natural tendency to research as much. But I went to, I got a pastry certificate at ACC here. So I did like the year and a half program, really enjoyed it because I was, I had started, actually, I was one of those people who was completely intimidated by home baking. My husband, his mom does a lot of baking and then he would do it for us when we got married, like just baking, you know, cookies and, and stuff like that. And then for some reason, like after a while, I was like, I am intrigued by this thing, which I love to eat because I have a sweet tooth. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of becomes something of an obsession. And I got to a point in I was working in the nonprofit sector and I was like, I'm ready to step away. I'm kind of maybe kind of like you a little jaded by it, but for my own reasons. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I want to step into this world and see if it leads me anywhere. It's kind of sort of did not, but that's OK. <laughs> I gained some really valuable skills and mm -hmm. it actually I feel like it's contributing to this little 
I, you know, it's funny, you were calling it a nano pod, not nano podcast, a nano bakery. I call mine a baby podcast right now. Eventually I will move into the toddler stage. But yeah, I think if, if you can get past like some of the basic intimidation, but yes, you do have to be something of a scientist and be willing to follow the rules for a bit. Yeah. You know, I think I was also thinking about it just like from a methodology point of view of like, like reading as much as I can before attempting a recipe or like reading and comparing recipes from different bakers to see which maybe has more butter than the other. But I, I'm actually, I'm a little bit of a rebellious baker because I, I don't necessarily like, so the whole like modernist bread, you know, like the five, yes, $600, not that I've ever bought it, but I've, I've made my library. <laughs> I requested it from the library and they must, must have hated me because it weighs a ton, but it's too scientific. I, I think the, the more you bake, the more, uh, you know, this is very common, like baker intuition you develop. Yes. Honestly, you have to be on your feet around dough. The dough might be, uh, you know, it, it, you have to adapt to like the different environment. And so yeah. I, the way I talk about it, and this is probably my teaching background, but like you have to listen to the dough and you have to kind of modify and treat it and maybe adjust this and, the, you know, a little bit of that. And depending on, on, on the, the environment or depending on how humid or dry it is or, you know, the temperature in your house. So, and, and I think there's not enough emphasis on just how intuitive baking is, uh, especially bread because bread, um, and here maybe my sort of gender bias will conserve, <laughs> but bread baking till this day is still primarily a male dominated space and science is a male dominated space. And so I think this idea that, you know, it all has to be scientific um, kind of undermines the the beauty that like, or, you know, the strength that our gender can bring. Yeah, no, totally. I think what like that's a really interesting perspective. As you were saying, you know, um, there was an article, maybe it was a year ago now, because I don't like so many people. It's like, what is time these days? Um, but do you know which one I'm talking about? Valley one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it it was getting at that. It's like it's it's almost become too scientific and it's very broy and it, you know, and and yeah, you're right. It's like at the heart of it, it's a very intuitive thing, you know. I mean, it's a living thing. And and sure you can temp the heck out of dough, you know, every hour if you wanted to, but also you could just look at it and like you said, listen to it and and know. I myself am not good at that. I I think I'm too impatient. I've tried sourdough several times. <laughs> I've gotten every every time I try it, I, I get a little bit better and then I just kind of uh-huh. give up. I'm like, I can't keep up with you, kid. <laughs> the sourdough <laughs> starter. But yeah, I, I think on the on the flip side, it, there is just this really beautiful intuitive thing if if you let it happen. And I think you can really extend that to a lot of baking because I know people get intimidated by just like a cake and it's like, well, when do you know it's ready? And it's like, well, what's the internal temperature of the bread? And I'm like, just touch it. Just yeah. touch it. It's going to tell you. Look bounce for the back. signs. Yeah, it'll bounce back. Is it pulling from, you know, pulling away from the sides of the pan? Like little things like that. Use all your senses, like yeah. taste it, smell it, touch it. Exactly. Oh man, I'm so into that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> There's a, um, um, I remember the first time I came across it. So I, and obsessively watch the great british bake-off for a lot of reasons um what so on one season there was a guy i 
think he ended up winning the season and now I'm not remembering his name. But he used to listen to his bakes and he's like, they will tell me when they're ready. And I remember thinking, you're absolutely batshit crazy. (laughs) But then I'm like, no, he's actually kind of right. Like I can tell when a cake is either getting close to or is ready by smell before the timer even goes off and i'm like yeah absolutely like yeah use all your senses so i will not disparage him listening to his baked goods (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I went through a british bake-off phase that's how i started setting challenges for myself because i would um not that i i know a lot of people who are like i'll bake everything that the they've baked on the british bake-off i i'm very driven by what i want to eat so my challenges revolved around like one of the most complicated baked goods, but also something I want to eat. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, my and, and my menu is kind of inspired really by the things I love to eat. Uh, and I, I will not kind of compromise <laughs> on, on that point of just like adding random things that I know will sell, you know? Yeah. It, it, it really, it's sort of driven maybe too much by what I, Olga, wants to eat. Yeah, but if Olga doesn't enjoy eating it or baking it, like, Olga's not going to sell it. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like, of another custard thing, like, pistachio de nata is, is something that, um, you know, the uh, Portuguese egg custard tart, mm-hmm. uh, one of the hardest things to do from scratch, mainly because you, uh, the, the dough, uh, you have to make, you know, the custard, then you have to preheat the oven for hours and bake it and, shape each mold and yeah. it's just a lot it's yeah. a lot for one human to do and and it, it, it's a very high in demand item uh but the only reason i ever made it is because one there's nowhere in austin you can get it and that's also an important driver for me mm-hmm. the reason my menu is so eclectic and represents so many different parts of the world is because i bake through this idea of bringing the world to austin um because when I moved here 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of diversity, I would say, when it came to like eating things. Yeah. Some things are very well represented, others well. not. And, and so I, I'm like, oh, I really am craving, you know, so I just have to learn how to make it. And that's how probably my baking really took off. I, I, I was like, I need to start baking, you know, Russian rye sourdough bread. Like I just, I need and and that's how I fell into this sourdough that's so obsession. Cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Wanting this taste of home, I guess. Yeah, even though, I mean, I didn't grow up eating rye bread. Okay. My, my mom liked uh, white bread or we would call it gray bread, which it just had a, a little bit more whole wheat, I guess. And, and white flour also, it's like a paradox. White flour used to be more expensive <laughs> than, than whole grain flour. So all, all the breads in Eastern Europe used to be whole wheat because it was cheaper, cheaper. to produce or rye, like mm-hmm. rye grows in Russia, just the climate is there for it. But anyway, uh, but but that was part of me reconstructing who I am and embracing like the Eastern European side of myself. Yeah. And um, and I guess I, I this is something I didn't bring up, but history is also connected because when I studied uh, ancient Rome, one of the things I studied uh, now looking back, it, it all makes sense. But I used to study uh, grain and grain transportation uh, and how the city of Rome fed itself uh, as the population of Rome was growing. Yeah. And so I, w- I was looking at grain distribution and like the trade 
uh, networks uh, of the Mediterranean and how grain was stored in these horaria, uh, you know, the ancient Roman grain storage facilities. And then I became obsessed with fermenting grain. You know, obviously bread baking is a solid form um, mm -hmm. of uh, fermenting grain. But before bread baking, I was obsessed with um, fermenting grains in the beer form, <laughs> in the liquid state. Uh, so I was a huge craft beer enthusiast. And I especially love uh, spontaneously fermented beers. Uh, so it's... Um, you know, like the most minimal human interactive way of making beer, you know, you take the wort, lay it out and let it inoculate by the bacteria that's in the air and then you bottle it and it's like the most delicious thing you can ever drink. You bottle it for years, so it takes okay. a while. <laughs> I was um, like, where can I find some? <laughs> but I, I don't know, another theme, I guess you're picking up on this time. Like, yeah. I guess I love things that take a lot of time. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things for me to um, translate into like prices on my menu. I don't think people realize that it takes me three days to make my babka, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, it, it takes me three weeks to make my naturally leavened holiday bread uh, that I had on the menu during uh, Christmas. It's, it's just an enormous amount of human. <laughs> you're, you're like <laughs> one human. <laughs> it's but it's something, you know, obviously charging like labor. Yeah. But, but this idea of, of, of what is time? How, yeah. how do you, how do you um, quantify it into? Yeah. So yeah. do you ever get pushback or have you ever gotten anybody telling you like slipping into your DMS and being like, why is your babka so expensive? Which by the way, I don't think it is. I think it's yeah. fairly priced. Uh, you know, it, it's a great question. Uh, no. Good. Uh, and and I, I guess now that I'm, now that I'm answering that question, it's kind of like, why am I even worried? <laughs> No, but I mean, I think it's, I think any maker, whether you're, you know, any artist or artisan of any kind, I think that's something that you, you know, they struggle mm -hmm. with because it's like, how do I value the work that I'm putting into it? Also, how do I value my worth knowing what's out there in, you know, the normal traditional marketplace and what it goes for? And so I, I don't know if it's like this thing of like not wanting to, you know, gouge people, which no, most mm -hmm. artisans, I, I would say, aren't. Um, right. There's like maybe some unwarranted guilt, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, and also uh, for me, it's about feeding people delicious things. Like I, I guess it's, you know, the idea of bread is that it's like a staple. Everybody just eats bread. It's, it's like a human right. Everyone should have bread. Uh, but it, it's to, to me, that's not enough. Like I want people to eat delicious bread or delicious uh, buns or um, delicious cheesecake. It, yeah. it, yes. it has to be, it, it has to bring joy and pleasure. For me, food was definitely, um, uh, I mean, both pleasure, intellectual, you know, yeah. fulfillment, because I, I learned something new, I mastered a new skill. Um, and also just the taste, like yeah. there's nothing in the world that maybe even well other things yeah, other yeah. forms of pleasure and 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 I will say that there there I struggle with that dimension because American culture also demonizes like pleasure you know that that goes back to the 
the yeah, root yeah. of and the origin of this country that yeah. is Puritan. Mm. You know, you're supposed to be all about self-control. Yeah. You know, control your emotions. And- yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I this is completely random because I'm like, I have I'm gonna try to remember the the, the question that I want to ask you, but this just popped mm-hmm. into my head. So I've been listening to this other podcast called Pass the Chipotle. Highly recommend it. I just came across it. And it's uh, it's a woman. She's I think she usually splits her time between the UK and Mexico, um, oh. but she's in Mexico currently, from what I gather. Anyway, I don't know. That's irrelevant. But mm-hmm. recently, I was listening to an old episode uh, about Diana Kennedy, the British food writer who lives mm-hmm. in Mexico, mm-hmm. and she was talking to the documentary filmmaker. I don't know if you saw it. It came out last year around April, maybe June. Um, by Elizabeth, it's the film is made by Elizabeth Carroll, and it's about Diana Kennedy. One of the you know, like uh, things that Rocio, who's the podcast host, she said, and this is where I'm getting at the point that you kind of made, is mm-hmm. that she's like, we tend to, and I, I don't know if she's specifically pointing out the American culture, but I think I, I can say it as an American. We do tend to fetishize certain dishes. And she says, she was saying, she's like, we fetishize, fetishize dishes mm-hmm. um, and dehumanize the human connection mm-hmm. that is, you know, implicit in a certain type of food. And it, it you know, it kind of gets into that pleasure thing. It's like when you're deprived of it or when you're told like you shouldn't do it, then you fetishize it. And so oh. I don't know. I'm just wondering like, oh, is that, you know, you know, butter, like, you know, getting back to those things that are kind of seen as. Well, I mean, even the words we use, right? Like sinful and da 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 da. da. Oh, yeah, no. Um, And drives me a little bit crazy. (laughs) That's the diet culture, also. Yeah, absolutely. That is the diet culture. Yeah. Don't even, I, my big thing I get annoyed with is when people talk, they eat clean. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, all food has nutrition. It's just either more or less nutritious. Exactly. So, and also, you know, then there's just shame associated with it. So. Oh yeah, I call it not call it, but it's the moralizing of food. You, yeah. we, we, some foods are good, as mm. if food can be bad or good. Yeah. Some foods are bad. That that I'm actually I always make a point to point out to somebody if they start moralizing food, it's like you don't don't <laughs> don't, don't eat it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That perpetuates yeah. and drives behavior. And like you were saying, then you start just either obsessing over something if you tell them you can't have it or yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. And then it gets into privilege as well. I worked in the food, like the food system and it wasn't done luckily where I worked, but you would see it of like, um, so bad food is fast food and, you know, convenience food. And it's like, well, that's the food of a lot of lower income families. And so then it's like, you're just piling all of this on to, you know, oh. already like, you know, class divide and socioeconomic status and, you know, oh. good food is the nutritious stuff that unfortunately, or the healthy, clean stuff is the stuff the, you know, rich folks can afford. And it's just like, let's not do that. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because then that moralization translates onto our society. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. good one. Yeah. We should have an, a separate episode on just that. Oh, I would, I, I'll come back anytime. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Um, so the exactly. other question, because I'm not going to forget, and I feel like so I feel like you've already kind of hinted at this, but I'm curious how you would put it. Is like, where do you think your love of history and food, or how do they intersect? And maybe you've already answered this, 
Um, but I'd be curious, figured I'd ask. Yeah, that that's, you know, I, there's actually so many answers to this question. It, it, I think one of the things I can speak to is uh, family history has, that's how I got into history. My dad and I, when we would go on road trips with the family, my dad and I would like talk about, he would tell me about, you know, my grandparents and World War II and like all of this cool history stuff. And I just, I, I think I fell in love with history because of my dad uh, and our conversations about where we came from. And, and, and I just wanted to take it further I also am driven by answering questions that we probably will never know the answers to. And so ancient history is literally like nobody knows anything territories. And then when it came to thinking about food, you know, I, I don't, and now that I'm reflecting on it, as I'm talking about it, <laughs> as you can see, I'm also kind of a minimalist in my approach. So the things that I like, have been around for hundreds of years. You know, sourdough baking is is how bread was made before commercial yeast was invented. Um, my love for spontaneously fermented beer is once again beer that was not made with any. I mean, that's been around since the 14th century in Belgium and 15 and yeah. so on. So I I like incorporating I guess tradition yeah into into my food. Not that I'm a uh, I, I'm not one of those people that idealizes the past by any means. Um, I know too much about, how, <laughs> or I think I know how the past <laughs> used to be that I definitely never want to repeat anything from the past, but uh, I think it's the processes that I love. It's, it's yeah. just how simple mm -hmm. all of these things are, but it just takes time and patience and high quality ingredients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of themes that I'm, or a lot of, you know, these words that are coming up, like you said, minimalist. And I think of, even though, you know, you're like Puritan, but like, there's this purity in um, baking with sourdough. It, it's so, it's minimalist, actually, maybe that's the better word. There's time, because I mean, the main ingredient is time, mm -hmm. really. Um, but otherwise, it's, like you said, it's a very minimal process and minimal. minimal human interaction exactly. I think that's there's something about that idea that I just want to continuously explore um and and I and I do have a million interests so uh like I love every facet of food which probably like anyway um everyone's <laughs> always like you you should find a niche you know like uh or it's food <laughs> Other bakers have been like, Olga, like, why is, why do you have so many random items on your menu? You should just produce one item, you know, over and over and over again. Um, Cause that, that, that's an easier business model. Right. And, and, and I don't know, I just can't, I can't, I can't pick one thing. I, I just love, I just love the diversity of food. If you ever want to talk about Russian Eastern European food, I could talk about that a lot because nobody understands just how diverse and I that's why I hate calling it Russian food Russian food is like American food it's it's a melting pot of cultures and ethnicities there's not not really Russian there's some ethnically Russian things but under the umbrella and that's why it's I think probably better to call it Soviet food but that's also not accurate because Russia was an empire before the Soviets Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I think you know, I, as I one of the things that I actually 
I don't want to say I hate, I strongly dislike, <laughs> is when someone lands on something that they really enjoy and this need to then, I don't know if this is the right word, but commoditize everything and then make a buck off of it. And again, losing some of that soul. I think, yeah. you know, with the whole artis artisanal movement, you're seeing, I don't want to say it's a backlash, but it might be a reaction to some of that um, kind of fast paced consumer, yeah. um, you know, consumerism. And so, you know, when you were saying like some people are like, why don't you just stick to one thing? And I'm like, because she loves all things. And if you take that away, like the passion is lost. And I think you would see that in your baking. And I, when I, I think, you know, there's a, uh, a saying in Spanish that basically says like, you know, tienes sazón. And it means like, yeah, like you've got like, I guess like seasoning or whatever in your fingers. But to me, it also means like there's heart in your cooking. And if you take that away, like, I think you can taste it in the finished product. So mm. if you were to stick, I mean, yes, if you were to stick to cheesecakes, they would sell like, you know, like crazy. But a part of you would you would be dead but you know there's like this whole other side of Olga that we would never get to experience and yeah no I mean good for doing you oh thank you yeah and probably yeah and I I do think about the commercialization of and and you know the biggest struggle is really people that come from affluent backgrounds are usually the ones in a position of privilege to do something they love and like fall into these traditions and kind of ex exploit um, practices of people that are they don't have the privilege to spend all day you know yeah. baking or you know I don't know it, so I, I I that probably is one of the biggest concerns I have around how do you how do I use high quality ingredients but don't become inaccessible yeah um, that's a hard to my, one to like my own people because that's my background and that's something I uh struggle with as um you know my business is sort of um depends uh, a, a little bit on Instagram and that audience is of course skewed to a certain population and so um but um, maybe one day I'll be able to kind of have a, a bigger reach and be able to serve people from more diverse kind of backgrounds um, because they deserve amazing, delicious food. Just, I mean, that I, I just, I struggle with that. Like yeah. I, I, the idea of them not having access to this is, is hard. Painful. Yeah. 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 I know. I mean, yeah, if you do want to be successful, of course, you know, there is this balance of you know, having a sound business model, but I think it is a struggle that a lot of people who, you know, really put their heart and soul into what they do of, you know, also like cut, not wanting to cut those corners and, and wanting to bring everyone along. And I think it's going to be a life. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever actually have the answer to that. But I think it's 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 really important that you're at least thinking about it, because I know it's something that I thought about once upon a time when I was like, if I were to start a business, how would I be able to incorporate, you know, good mm -hmm. quality ingredients into this product, but make it accessible to everybody, especially to the community from yes. where it comes from? Exactly. Uh, because I'm, I'm honoring that side of, of me, but I also don't want to then completely shut them out because I chose to use grain exactly. from a local miller because I'm also trying to support the farmer. It's a really complicated system and, and 
I don't know. Nobody solved it yet. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Barton, Barton Springs Mill, you know, when people see that a pound of flour is <laughs> $8, um, you know, that, that puts things into a, a bit of a perspective versus, you know, where we're used to buying flour for, you know, five pounds for $3 yeah. or, you know, um, so, uh, yeah, and it's it's such a paradox right it's a paradox it's like you're trapped like there's no way that flour can be sold for or that grain can be produced at a different price tag yeah, yeah. exactly because then you're doing a disservice to the farmer who grew it yeah. and put the resources into it right and then you're doing a disservice to yourself as the miller and the people that you're trying to pay, pay a fair wage hopefully um and then you know yeah, it takes so much time. To do that. Time. Brain. I know it's like this. It's same. all about time. <laughs> I feel like time and custard are the two phrases, <laughs> the two words to take away. <laughs> I love it. That could be, yeah. I incorporate that into my branding. <laughs> Actually, I mean, speaking of like, I, I need to focus a little bit on the design aspect of my um, image, but. I also kind of like the secret of nature, the mystery of like, oh, just go to this random website and like it adds to the allure. You know, it's kind of that thing of like the pop-up dinner or like, you know, those, you know, uh speakeasies and stuff. You have kind of a speakeasy bakery going on, cottage bakery going on, which Yeah, great. and it's all obviously all legal. <laughs> yes, it's all above board in there is you it's it's called the cottage food rights or whatever <laughs> in Texas. Yes. Cottage food laws. Um cottage food laws. Um, so because I see all of those books behind you, I'm wondering if you had to just throw one favorite food book out. And then I also have, because you love food podcasts, you told me this, a favorite food podcast. But let's start with the book. Oh, my God. Are you talking about like books about food or cookbooks? Good distinction. Good distinction. Um, let's go with books about food, because I think people tend to ask about like, what's your favorite cookbook? But I'm actually really into books that deal specifically with food studies. So, okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you considering getting like a master's or a PhD in food studies? <laughs> My husband would probably be like, pack your bags and go woman. <laughs> um, I have, so I have a film degree and then I got a master's in public administration. Then I went to pastry school. <laughs> I love learning. Like I'm, I, I, every few years I'm like, maybe I'll go back and audit some classes, which is actually totally doable and very inexpensive uh, compared to getting a full degree. But. Exactly. Oh yeah. The, the best, the, the best quotation marks is definitely the one in New York city, which uh, NYU has the best food studies program. So I guess um, because I am, a history person. <laughs> I'll, I'll, my favorite book about food is by a historian. She's also a British uh, female uh, author. She's, uh, her name is Rachel Loudon, L-A-U-D-A-N. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, uh, but it's called Cuisine and Empire. And so it, so it struck, um, not struggles, but it deals with the themes of imperialism and colonization of food. And I think her biggest contribution is when she looks at Hawaii and the complexity of uh, what is happening there uh, in terms of food and identity and culture. So, it, it, you know, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a, a read, uh, but, um, but if, if you're interested in the topic, 
And, and I think she's appeared as a guest on a food podcast that's all about food and history. And that's a taste of the past. And that's probably the most kind of nerdy history, rigorous food podcast I can, I can think of. Um, and it's her, the, the host is Linda something, um, Linda Pilaccio, I think. And so she interviews all of these food historians and culture writers. And yeah, she's, been doing it for quite a bit. You know, I went through, I, I used to listen to a lot of food podcasts like 2014 through 16. And then I kind of stopped for a little bit. And then I went back in and I looked at how many they are. And my mind was a little bit blown. I got so overwhelmed. <laughs> Here I am adding another one is the thing. I know I thought it, but I was like, who needs another food co- podcast? But I love it. Everybody does. I know. I'm like, also, who cares? No, you know, that type of thinking stops us from doing things. Exactly. I've had those thoughts about (laughs) pretty much everything. No, I'm, I'm, I think one, Austin needs food um, voices and people who care about food and who can think about it in a constructive and, you know, um, yeah, uh, Yeah. in, in a way that is not really happening. It's a little bit aesthetically and commercially motivated. And I'm here specifically talking maybe about like the food blog, um, mm. culture, but which is a culture in and of itself. So I'm not moralizing it. I just, yeah. it's just, that's what it's been dominated by. And I think we just have to look at the richness of the people that are here and I think you're doing like a public service by oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just like put that little crown on for the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, by having these conversations, yeah. So not just because I'm on the podcast, like <laughs> other people who actually matter. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking about it. It's it it's funny, like I when I was like thinking my husband was like the one that's like, you should do a food podcast because you love talking about food. Like I literally think about it, you know, morning, noon, and night. And One of the things that I was realizing, and of course, I haven't like done a deep dive into food podcasts of, you know, Apple or Google podcasts or whatever. But from the very, my very little research that I've done, there are a lot of people of color leading food podcasts. And so I feel like that voice, that perspective is perhaps missing. Um, So I was like, well, I'm just going to, you know, throw my hat in the ring and and see what, what comes out of my mouth. I mean, I think especially your identities in particular, and I listen to a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I couldn't ag- agree more of how important your voice is and the contribution that you're making to the food conversations that are that are happening or or not happening, and you're making them happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's yeah, and then just like I think it who depending on obviously depending on your background and your interests it leads you to seek out certain types of like-minded people and so you know maybe I'm digging into that a little bit more and no, so I mean like we found each other right and we, <sighs> we well, have so many food and just interest and the way we look at people and culture and society yeah I feel like we're, we're going to be talking again for sure <laughs> absolutely <laughs> oh my god I'm yeah I, I could do this for hours and um, I, I know me too. And I'm like, okay, you probably have had a long day and you want to go eat. <laughs> I ate before this. So not to worry. We actually had um, the, the less famous green borscht, not the 
not the red one that everybody goes like stereotypes Russian food over. Um, <laughs> not that, and that's only Russian borscht. Russian borscht is made with um, way more beets than like Ukrainian borscht. And that's oh. why it has that like purple uh, color. Um, okay. Ukrainian borscht has more like a red color because you use more tomato juice. Anyway, so, but there's also green borscht, uh, which is made with sorrel, um, which is a, a sour kind of spinach type for anyone who doesn't know what that is. Um, and if you don't have access to that particular um, green, uh, I just buy the canned version. <laughs> and, and this is where I also don't moralize food. Like you can't say that canned things are not as good. Cause no. Yeah, value ingredients in their own special little way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all bring something to the table. Um, it has its place also for some people, kind of getting back to the to the top of the episode, it's like there are food memories associated with certain canned foods, right? And so... A lot. So like you can't, de you know, demonize it because it comes in a can. Right, Russia has its own version of spam except it's like shredded pork uh, canned shredded pork oh my god if i smell that i just think of like one of the best tastes <laughs> yeah okay so what was the name of that food food podcast uh taste of the past taste of the past okay i'm gonna remember that one i'm gonna check it out it's on um it's on heritage radio so they have all of that food podcast programming uh, they also have that modernist bread the science people did um so if you do want to learn the science of bread you can listen to the podcast um if you can't afford the book which probably everyone <laughs> I think yeah no. um, <laughs> i have other things i'd rather buy it, it's not the best podcast it's a little bit of a slow burn um <laughs> is that would you say that's your favorite podcast like if i was like oh god one podcast <laughs> what is it i oh my god impossible i i follow the people I guess the one that I really enjoyed the most recent is uh, Flower Hour, uh, and that's two bakers who were on the American version of the British Bake Off, which I've never seen, but one of them won one of the seasons. And then the other one, and I apologize for forgetting everyone's name, he has a Portuguese background. And so I just love listening to him talk about some, some of his Portuguese creations, and he has a blog um, and the other one does like cakes and she just came out with a cake book. Uh, but they interview bakers. So uh, Helen Go, like everyone. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. uh, you can listen to baker stories, how they got into it and what that looked like. Like Otto Lange, um, he also is from an academic background. He left a PhD program in philosophy. So that's also kind of a random theme that I'm noticing with all of these. Yeah, people who are passionate about food that come from like a, and nerdy. <laughs> I know. I'm like, so I, it's so funny. I'm thinking of a friend and my friend Kristen listens to this podcast. Love you. Uh, so her husband is in academia and I'm like, well, maybe you should leave academia and really dig into that. He makes a killer Spanish, like a proper Spanish tortilla. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. um, I'm like, you know, just go into that and I'll buy it. <laughs> So, uh -huh. but yeah, he's also really into food and who, who knows, maybe he'll end up in the same place we are talking about food. I used to cat sit for a classics professor and he, it, he like, he loves ancient history, but then he also loves uh, cooking and taking culinary classes. He has uh, one of the most insane cookbook collections. I, I mean, I've been exposed to, and this, this was like back in 2000, 
15. Uh, so right when I was kind of going through that identity uh, <laughs> transition. Yeah, I think it's also just sometimes you're exposed to things. And because I, I don't have one of those stories where I could say, you know, when I was a little girl, I would, you know, make pin menu with my mom or like ask her questions or I was not into food at all when I was growing up. It's something that happened to me when I was in my mid 20s as part of like embracing who I <laughs> No, I I also can relate to that. I was a picky eater and I did not want to eat basically. And then when I did, it was all junk food. And it wasn't until I got to college that I really got into food like proper like exploring and you know finding out and I think it's because I was finally exposed to just different mm -hmm. cuisines and people basically and so I got curious about that and it's also where my love of travel really took off <laughs> yeah no I and yeah and that's that's why I like to make things from all over the world because <laughs> I just I just love trying trying new things and I wish I could travel more but well especially now it's especially now I know I try I travel through food and, and now it's become a bit of a kind of cliche statement but it's it's been true for me for years uh so yeah you can bring the world into your kitchen yeah through a book <laughs> I mean that's been so true for, for so long it's like open up a book and you can travel the world right and we can have probably a whole other episode about ingredients and how insanely difficult it is to sort <laughs> like random ingredients. <laughs> uh, I yeah. have, like a spreadsheet of where I can find what in Austin because it's so hard to find things that oh, are not wow. okay. tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you feel I feel like you're talking my language now. I have spreadsheets too, but it's very specific to travel. Like and if we're like we're going to I don't know Paris, mm -hmm. whatever. You know, yeah. and be like, okay we are going to check out this restaurant. They serve this type of food. It's located, here's the address. This is the time. This is the contact information. And then I'll go back and make notes of what we had, whether I liked it, what to pick, what to choose. And then I share that with friends. <laughs> yeah, I'm that person. I, I do it for Barcelona because that's my, and Rome. And I have a list of the best croissant, the best, <laughs> I have a very, very specific <laughs> list. <laughs> best vermouth. As patatas bravas, like there's a guy who has like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of followers who just, you know, ranks patatas bravas places in Barcelona. Right. And I followed his list. And oh. I, I mean, I, I or <laughs> best croquetas and like, yeah, I, I'm and yeah, people do that, obviously, in Austin with like best tacos. And but I, I feel like saying best tacos is like, like, how are people kind of doing that? Because there's different yeah <laughs> this is a topic i could go off on like have very strong opinions on uh because we need to talk more <laughs> yeah we'll we'll have to talk more offline because my husband he's like if you could see me now he would just be laughing and laughing. just cracking up because anytime somebody mentions like oh i had the best taco and i'm like hold the phone i have you know certain parameters you need to answer them also who are you and that's why I preface my list. They're like, this is what I enjoyed. Uh, and so if we share a similar palette, you know, <laughs> you will enjoy it too. But yeah. And then, of course, there's criteria that needs to be met. Absolutely. <laughs> like, if you have a bad tortilla, like, the taco is doomed <laughs> like, to be bad in my eyes. I'm like, that's like foundational. Like, if the thing that carries the ingredients into your mouth stinks, like, don't even bother. <laughs> And if I could thank uh, one of one of the biggest 
probably sources of support in the food industry has been Beto, uh, the owner of uh, Cuantos Tacos. And, and so I don't know, be, you know, meeting people in the food industry has been really amazing. Like one of the other kind of side effects of, you know, starting a local bread baker was meeting people who are supporting you in the food industry. And, he, you know, he helped me get some equipment and just gave me some advice on how to navigate things. And so kind of, yeah, I think there's so many good people in, in food. and <laughs> There really are. There really are. It, it can be a really beautiful industry to work in. And it's some of the hardest working people I think I've ever met. Oh, and it's hard work. I, yeah, I think people just need to say thank you more to people who like cook uh, or bake, you know. Uh, so not, not, well, it sounds weird me saying it because I guess I'm a baker, <laughs> but I just mean to other people, you know. I really, yeah, it's, it's huge. And, you know, I mean, especially these days with the pandemic and everything, how much the hospitality industry is hurting. I just read an article about a place that I've been wanting to go to for so long in New York that's had to shut down. Hopefully they'll open in the future, but for now they're just closing their doors. So, but, but yeah, thank anybody who's in the food industry, especially these days, they're putting in a lot of work and trying to Definitely keep their businesses open and keep their jobs and, you know, tip a little extra if you're able to. I know it's hard, hard times for a lot of people. So I'm going to say thank you to you for talking to me. This has been amazing. (laughs) And I definitely want to talk to you more. And yet definitely thank you for introducing Basque Cheesecake to not only myself, but to the greater Austin community because it's so damn good. Your babka is also delicious. So Thank you for following your heart and your passion and sharing it with oh, us. Thank you for inviting me. I, I mean, I, I absolutely loved every minute of our conversation. I, I think about this stuff. And so, you know, the ability to articulate some of my thoughts and share my ideas. Thank you for the opportunity. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> to summarize, it's really cool. <laughs> I told you we covered a lot of food ground. Thank you, thank you to Olga for carving out a bit of your day to speak with me. It truly was a pleasure to learn how Local Breadbaker came about and see how your love of history has shaped where you're at today. If you're in Austin, you can pick up her baked goods by signing up for her weekly menu newsletter on her website, localbreadbaker.com, and you can find her on Instagram, at localbreadbaker. As always, if you like today's episode and you're enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review the podcast and tell your friends. I'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks with a new episode. For now, be well and hasta pronto.